Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. I'm Peter Moore. Today we're off to one of the most commemorated years in all of Western history. Felipe Fernandez Armesto is one of our great historians. For his books on maritime and imperial history, he's been awarded many prestigious prizes, from the Caird Medal here in the UK to the Premio Nacional de Investigación Geográfica in his native Spain. His interests span the globe and they roam across centuries of history. But if you could visit just one year in the past and just three locations within that year, then what would he choose? I met up with Philippe the other day to ask him this very question and to find out a little bit more about his new book, Straits Beyond the Myth of Magellan. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I'll start off. Philippe Fernandez Armesto, by welcoming you to Travels Through Time. It's an absolute pleasure to be talking to you today. And hopefully we've got a nice little hour's conversation in front of us. I'm going to start with your book, um, which I've been reading over the last week or so. It's a fascinating bit of history. We're now in 2022, reaching the 500th anniversary of a very significant milestone. One of the great voyages from the golden age of the age of exploration the so-called Magellan Expedition, which departed from near Cadiz in Spain in 1519 and returned 500 years ago in 1522. Now, in all popular memory, this is remembered as an astonishing success. It was the first circumnavigation of the world. Magellan found a strait, which is named after him. He entered the Pacific Ocean, he crossed the ocean, and he found the Malaccas or the Spice Islands at the other side, then returned to Spain around the Cape of Good Hope. It's all like kind of a story of great success, surely. But you start your book um, by exploding this myth to some extent. You cast it much more in kind of Dunkirk terms as a noble failure. So I thought that was the best place to start. If you could tell us a little bit about this idea of the Magellan voyage. Thank you for your welcome, Peter. I assure you the, the pleasure's all mine. Uh, it's a great treat to be with you. And thank you very much for um, what I can only interpret as a very benign plug for my new book. I can do a less benign one if you like. It's right here in front of me. Yes. So th- this is the book in question. Very interesting. But, but of course, yes. I mean, I, there's no point in being anything except a myth buster if you're trying to be (laughs) an historian because you just confirm what people already think you might as well not have bothered researching in the first place and I myself was rather surprised I suppose by the extent of Magellan's failure because his reputation for success really derives from uh, a literary tradition which started shortly after his his death, a, a, a mythopoeic romanticization of his life. And you use the phrase noble 
failure. And I think in many ways he was an ignoble failure <laughs> because yeah, yeah, very extraordinary, isn't it, that nowadays the worst thing that can happen to you is to be a dead white male explorer because then people hate you, they tear down their statues, they revile your reputation, they besmirch your renown. But in Magellan's case, he's escaped all that. In spite of being actually, you know, one of the nastiest of those uh, explorers whose crimes included murder, judicial murder, re rapine, mayhem, uh, uh, arson, <laughs> treason. Um, and yet in spite of all that, he still has this great reputation. Uh, and, and when you add to that the extent of his failure, he failed in every declared objective of his voyage, both those suggested by the King of Spain, his patron, and those which he set for himself, which were often very different from those that the king wanted. And he, he didn't succeed in any of them. And the, the supposed, you know, redeeming feature that most historians, like all previous historians have accepted is that the voyage made a profit in crude yeah. material terms. It didn't, it was, it, it made a very substantial loss if you take, you know, all the accounts uh, into consideration. And perhaps, you know, the, the, the most surprising thing is that it contributed nothing to the scientific understanding or the geography of the time. It didn't, you know, Magellan himself didn't circumnavigate the world. He never made it to the Spice Islands. Um, he, he died before he got there. And if you, you know, look at the sort of crude balance of success and failure, he lost all one of his ships, his own life, and those of almost all of his men. I mean, to say nothing of the, the devastation inflicted on some of the indigenous societies with which he interacted, of his own crew, the death rate, if you take out all the people who deserted uh, or fell into enemy hands, the death rate was 90%, which was, you know, pretty big death rate, even for these fantastic voyages uh, of the um, late 15th and early 16th centuries. So I don't know, you put all that together, to me, that's a pretty unquestionable record of failure. So do you think, um, so implanted in that answer is the is the riddle, why, why then do we continue to revere a voyage that had such marked failures as you describe there. Was it the case that because he died, he left himself a kind of martyr to this age of exploration when they needed a hero? You say before, um, he's in a way, in this kind of post-colonial age that we now live in, he is the most congenial figure that you can find. It's no Columbus, he's not like da Gama or, or even some of the later ones that came. Magellan has um, had his name put on the side of NASA rockets and um, even anything connected with that, that voyage. I used to live in Madrid when I was younger and I remember Juan Sebastián Elcano, he would have his name was on streets and metro stations and bars and it seemed like there was a kind of lustre to the whole voyage which has continued to light up over the centuries. What, what is that lustre? Well, you make a very good point. I, I mean, I think the, the reputation of Elcano is, is in Spain is, is a, a slightly different sort of phenomenon. But in the case of Magellan, I think you you know you you hit on an absolutely vital aspect of this when you mentioned uh, the moral effect of his death. 
You know, we now know, you know, from the examples of Elvis Presley and guys like that, that death can be a great career move. And it was <laughs> in Magellan's case, uh, because by the time he died, I think he'd really abandoned all hope of the sort of material rewards, the social ascent that he was hoping would be his, um, would be the outcome of his endeavours for himself. He'd really, he knew that the best that could happen to him if he ever got back to Spain was that he'd be tried for trees and he probably had his head chopped off. <laughs> they, they really, you know, he was at the end of his career. And my view is that he deliberately contrived the way he died to make it seem as heroic and romantic as possible. Indeed, I, I think I tried to show in the book that he modeled his death uh, very consciously on that of the great chivalric hero of the Middle Ages, Roland, who died because he was too proud and too brave to summon aid in a battle in which he was doomed. And I think Magellan was you know, quite deliberately following that pattern. And it worked. You know, I think that his death created this tremendous resonance. And of course, in, in certain cultures, you know, I think in Britain, where we're having this conversation, people do have a sort of um, sentimental attachment to failure. The yeah. British love the Dunkirk spirit. And in my own country, in Spain, there's a sort of similar reverence for failure. The famous Spanish saying says, um, Honor without ships is better than ships without honor. <laughs> and, and, and you know, there are other cultures, Japan's another culture where this sort of sense of the uh, the grandeur of failure, the heroism of failure, is very strong. I mean, the final thing is that Magellan had a stooge to ride it all up for him. Remember, Winston Churchill said that he wasn't afraid of the judgment of history because he was going to write it himself. And Magellan wasn't up to that, but he did have a great writer to do it for him. He had Antonio Pigafetta, Vincenzo, a gentleman who sailed with Magellan and who was under his thrall and who's really responsible for the notion that this uh, voyage... Is he kind of like a, almost like a Boswell to Johnson character? Is it that kind of sense of adjuration from a chronicler that he had, which is very useful, yes. all like one of those? Yes, so yeah, yes, you could say that he was his Boswell, although, of course, alas, you know, we can't reconstruct the details of the relationship in the same details you can reconstruct that of Boswell and John. I should ask you at this point, just for our listeners who are not familiar with um, the manner of Magellan's death, could you tell us how he did die? Um, just to, 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 to clarify that one, please. Sure. Well, the common belief that he was heading for the Moluccas is false. Those were the king's orders, but Magellan was very focused on going to the Philippines and trying to create a sort of fief, a kind of lordship for himself there, because those islands he knew were, were rich in gold. They were very close to China, which was a place everybody wanted to trade with. Uh, and he also knew they were politically very divided, so there was an opportunity to kind of play off one ruler against another. And that's what he tries to do when he gets there, but he backs the wrong ruler, and he finds himself committed to battle against other more powerful uh, of the local kinglets in, amongst whom the islands were divided. They, so he goes into battle against one of the most powerful of them, the king of Matan, 
Uh, and uh, he's got a very small force, he is hugely outnumbered, and he almost deliberately contrives to fight the battle in the worst possible place. <laughs> you know, Napoleon pointed out that the most important thing when you're fighting a battle is to choose the, the best terrain for yourself. Um, and Miguel almost deliberately chooses terrain that favours the enemy. So he's a long way from his supporting ships. He's beyond artillery range. His men have to wade through the sea to get on shore. Uh, they've got to cross all these sort of ditches and trenches that the enemy have, have prepared, and they're vastly outnumbered. And, and eventually, you know, when, when the rest of his men retreat to their their ships, uh, Magellan stays there being pounded and pummeled by the, the missiles of the enemy, surrounded by this sort of handful of, of uh, his, his most devoted um, retainers. Um, so those are the circumstances of his, his, his death. And you know, one, the, the guy who wrote up the adventure, who, who was responsible for creating the myth, escapes you know, barely with his his life with a sort of poisoned missile in his leg, which then swells up whilst he's busily trying to write up the effects of the the um, the escapade. Yeah, so Magellan's body is, you know, kind of abandoned and left uh, on the shore in the sort of pool of uh, of salt water, riddled with wounds. Magellan's character. I just want to touch on this before we get into the main matter of what we're going to talk about today, because of course it's his personality which infuses the voyage which you write about and um you talk about him being a kind of elusive character in in the archive he's not really he's he's not really i suppose present in a very obvious way although he's there you often you often point out and you you have managed to construct a picture of him as as you describe it being tragically flawed with his social ambition he had heroic self-delusion self-righteousness and a kind of cruel humor as well do you think he was someone who had a sense of destiny that's kind of maybe a big question but you get these characters and i mean it's kind of like a little napoleon almost you know someone who felt that they had to leave their mark on the world and that they were going to be protected by either fate or by some religious force. Yes, thank you. Not quite like Napoleon. <laughs> Napoleon did say, Quel remarque ma vie. So, in a sense, they both sort of modelled the trajectory of their lives on fiction. So to that extent, he was a character like Napoleon. But of course, he, he belonged in a different era. Yeah. You know, we... The, the Enlightenment hadn't happened, the scientific revolution hadn't happened, romanticism hadn't happened. So he's embedded in a completely different cultural environment from Napoleon. The kind of fiction that Magellan modeled his life on was medieval chivalric romances, tales of knightly daring do. In order to understand him, you've got to understand he was an orphan. Uh, he came from a very minor noble family. He was... Uh, very resentful, he had a chip on his shoulder, he thought he'd sort of life had denied him his birthright. And he modelled himself, as many of us do, you know, we, we, I mean, you don't have to be a bloody intellectual like me, you know, to be influenced by what you read. We all, when we read, we sort of start imagining ourselves in the role of the, of the hero. And that's what Magellan did in his own reading, which was fundamentally in this type of what I call the airport bookstore, station bookstore, pulp fiction of the time. And so these are typically, you know, tales of people down on their luck who have adventures and who are sensational and, and who end up um, 
living happily ever after. And in McGill's case, it, it all happened, except the living happily ever after. <laughs> That's where it all kind of went wrong. So that was the sort of guy um, he was. But of course, you know, you can't expect somebody to be the same person throughout his or her life. We all change as we go along. And I think one of the reasons why I, I wrote the book was that previous biographers of McGillan present this very static character. And to me, I could think I can detect the dynamism of his, his personality as it unfolds, as it's changed by experience, because you can't get on these long, arduous, you know, terrible voyages stuck in these ships with no external communication, sharing your, your, your very limited space with a lot of bilge water and rats and people who hate you, <laughs> and getting on for a very long time in the case of, of Magellan's voyage at one point, spending 97 days at sea continuously, which I think at the time was a record. You can't go through all that without it changing you. And put it very crudely, I would say the Atlantic made Magellan more ruthless and reckless, and the Pacific made him more religious until he ends up as a kind of almost sort of slightly, I mean, did, can I say a fanatical nutcase? Is that, is that okay? You can, you can call him a fanatical nutcase after spending so long writing about him. You're eminently qualified to do so. And of course, it's a nice way of structuring it between the two oceans and with that strait in the middle that still bears his name, the Strait of Magellan, that you describe in the book as this kind of tunnel of wind and the picture of him kind of going down that in that tiny little ship is is I think the abiding one of, of, of the book. But anyway, let's get on um, to our main business because when you write, there's a great sense of you having your story, but also contextual awareness. And this is so important to studies of your period where sometimes the, the record is going to leave gaps where you can't get a, this kind of Boswellian picture that emerges in later centuries that you alluded to. Um, so today, I think... A good way of characterising what we're going to do now is to dive back into the context of Magellan's world. What world was he was he growing up in? What were its promises? What were its fears and its hopes? And we're going to do that with the Travel Through Time format, which is the three scenes and one year. And always begins by me asking the provoking question, I hope, um, that if you could travel back through time to one calendar year in the past, which year would you pick? Uh, oh, well, I, I think I've picked 1492 because I'd like to talk about it. Um, whether I'd like to, to be there, I, I'm not so sure. I, I, I think I'd very much like to be in the first scene that I've proposed to talk about, which is um, you know, in, in the, the home of, of Zhang Zhao, this Chinese painter who has a, a mystical experience on the night of August the 7th, 1492, and who, who painted it and wrote about it in a way that makes um, mysticism very vivid and also takes us to the heart of the sort of Confucian world that he inhabited in the China of the time. And I, 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 I think the reason why I chose 1492 is that um, it's just such a resonant year in which so much happens that recrafts the world in a very sudden and dramatic way and makes it very much more like 
the world we inhabit today. There's something sort of recognizable about the world since 1492, which is very different from the world before it. And there are very few years in history about which you can say that the events of that year really transformed the world. And of course, yeah, a lot of it is to do with Columbus. The world is transformed by, by ecologically and culturally. The reason I suppose for starting in, in China is that that's where Columbus was going. You know, that's where everybody yeah. wanted to go. And it was the sort of, you know, top nation, if you like, at the time. But so, so you, you have written a previous book titled 1492 when you deal with this year in more detail and it's presented as a hinge year really between the end of an old world and the start of another world that's how it's really kind of intriguingly presented to the reader and it is it is very true i mean you you write in that book divergence began and this is just to give a sense of the time that we're talking about divergence began perhaps about 150 million years ago with the fracture of, now you're going to have to tell me how to pronounce this because I'm going to stumble, I think. The Fracture of Pangaea, is that right? That sounds pretty good to me. That'll do. The planet's single great landmass that poked above the surface of the oceans. And then from that point onwards, we have this idea of the world maybe separating into different parts. But then the poetic image of in 1492, this process beginning at least, by which we are going to become a global world, the global world that we know today. I suppose the one that there might be a few people still out there who have have not been embraced by this process of globalism, which is, or globalization, should I say, which started all those years ago. But 1492 really is the moment. So I suppose what it gives us an opportunity to do this year is to, of course, see the beginning of something new, but also to look at the end of something old and i think that's um that the encounter between the two is something that seems to really interest you as a historian is that correct well yes i mean i'm very intellectually indisciplined and i you know just about everything interests me uh, and i think one of the problems that i've always had as a professional historian is that you're not really supposed to be like that you know, you're supposed to specialize um and i i I, I've specialized that you know, I specialize in the way that a serial monogamist is faithful. <laughs> I, I, I just done one thing after a, a, um, another, like an intellectual flippage of it. And as a result, I, I've come, you know, in old age to be able to write about these very, very big subjects. Uh, and, and now, you know, because I'm very old, nobody minds. I'm sort of allowed this indulgence, which, you know, younger academics are not permitted. Um, so yes, I am interested in the whole span of that 150 million years. In fact, but I, you know, in some respects, I, I think about and write about much longer intervals of time. But it is amazing, isn't it, that something which has had a continuous, you know, sustained pattern for 150 million years as the continents drift apart and different ecosystems, different environments take shape in the various sundered land masses of the world, that that process should suddenly go into reverse in a single year 
And this long period of what I call divergent evolution between the different parts of the world should be replaced by a model of convergent evolution. Because since 1492, all the you know, life forms, all the biota, all the plants, the, the animals, the, the microbes of the world have got more and more like each other instead of in the previous 150 million years getting more and more unlike. Uh, each other. That's a really stunning change to happen so quickly. And obviously, the other aspect of it is that you know, over a shorter period of time, but still, you know, for many thousands of years, cultures had been diverging around the world. They've been getting more and more unlike each other as they, they remained out of contact, they adjusted to new environments. In 1492, mainly because Columbus launched a, a new technique for long-range voyaging, and it was able to reunite the sundered cultures of Europe and the Americas. Since then, that process has also, you know, been reversed, and we've we've gone on reconnecting with each other's cultures until we've come to inhabit this this very globalized, use your word, world that we live in now, where practically every culture is in very close touch with every other culture, and they're all exchanging uh, influences. Uh, and again, that's an extraordinary different world. You know, people before. Um, 1492 would be literally incapable of imagining it because there was nothing like it in their experience. So let's go to China, where you, you alluded to China before, and this is going to be our first point of contact in 1492. Any idea um, about time? What kind of time in the year? Or is it difficult to say? Um, but really, if you can just elaborate on why you would like to go to China in 1492 and what you would like to see. No, I, I, I can be very specific about this date. It's August the 7th. In, in our terms, we would call it August um, the 7th. Uh, and we know that because the painter I mentioned, Jean Zhao, who was, who, he wasn't a professional painter, he was a rich gentleman who lived in retirement and who wrote poetry and who did paintings, which were very famous and very esteemed throughout the Chinese world. He, he, he signed the, the, the painting that he painted on that day and he, and he ended the, the, this sort of fantasy, this reverie that he wrote about his experience of the, the night. Uh, and he dated it, so we, we can be absolutely precise about this. And he was living in, in retirement in his in his private, you know, literary pavilion, surrounded by his books in these rain-swept mountains. Um, and he describes the the rain, the the sounds that he hears, the the distant drum beats, the barking of the dogs, and. And and his and he paints it. You can see he's he's this little tiny figure in the midst of all this nature, and he describes his sense of coming to feel at one with all of these sounds and sights that are, are surrounding him, and how the sort of whole of nature comes to infuse his his being, so that he's identified with the world, and that's a you know extraordinary uh, mystical experience of the sort that people were increasingly having around the world. It does seem to me that the, the recorded instances of mystical experience in lots of different cultures that we know about accelerate in the late 15th and 16th centuries. 
Oh, I think this is, you know, another constituent of the world that we live in now, because although most of us probably think mysticism is a bit weird and we don't go in for it, and very few of us have genuinely had mystical experiences, I think we can all see how the mystical emphasis on the individual, individual, you know, you have a mystical experience because you're focusing uh, all your thoughts inwardly. You're, you're trying to immerse yourself. You're very conscious of your own identity and trying to immerse yourself in something bigger. Nature in the case of Jean Zhao, God perhaps in the case of a lot of Christian mystics. And that focus on the individual is just so characteristic of our own world. We inhabit a world in which individualism is actually the reigning ideology. You know, people talk about capitalism and, 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 and liberty and all that, of course, but you can't have those without a sense of the individual. You can't have an economic system that's, that's focused on individual benefit without individualism. You can't have a, a, a political system that's focused on the individual voting rights, unless you've got a sense of the value of the individual. And I think that mysticism really contributes fundamentally to that in a way that historians and, and students of literature have not previously sufficiently experienced. And I, you know, I do think it's another way in which the the world of 1492 is um, part of our world and, and very different from what it preceded. And Shenzhou is, um, at once, he's, as you d- describe it, he was, he was much admired in his time. He was wealthy. He was independent. He didn't need a patron. Um, but does he, apart from being outside of like the clutches of... Um, I suppose the 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 common life of the average person does he does his vision about China tell us anything? Did he did that represent, or does it tell us anything about Chinese society? Can we get a glimpse or a sense of it from looking at his work? Yes, we can get a glimpse and a sense. We don't get a a, a general picture because he was very wrapped up in his own little world with his literary friends and his his all-night drinking and painting and composing poetry and so obviously this is a very refined sort of socially and educationally high level world we do get a sense and a glimpse of what China was like because we get um a, a very Confucian view of the relationship between the individual and the rest of the the cosmos, uh, a, a view in which you know things like peace and tranquility and harmony, these are the ideals, these are the virtues that that for Zhao really matter. But if you want to get a sense of what the whole of China was like, I think you you've got to compare him with other painters, other Chinese painters of the time. I always think that if you want to know what the past was like. Look at its art, you know, <laughs> because it's the way painters and sculptors, sculptors and architects and uh, landscape designers represented their world that is, you know, our means of getting into their minds. Mm. Um, so I always like to look at the art, and if you compare, I don't know, Zhao with another famous painter of the time, he wasn't so rich, Wu Wei. Uh, he he has a completely different picture of his world, which is much more. He he focuses on on human figures to a much greater extent. As I mentioned in Zhao, the human 
maybe at the center of the composition, but it's always this tiny speck you know, surrounded by the vastness of the cosmos. Whereas in Wu Wei, humans are these very dynamic agents. And Wu, although he was also a Confucian, was very influenced by Taoism and to some extent by Buddhism. And you can see Chinese culture in a much richer, more multifarious, more variegated, more pluralistic way, if you take into account uh, his uh, paintings and perhaps there's some others of the uh, of the time. And then, of course, you know, there's, there's the conventional historian's way of documenting the Chinese past, in this case, you know, the, the world that surrounded Zhenzhou by, by looking at um, you know, documents and diaries and so on. In my 1492 book, I, I, I try to evoke what China was like using the diary of a, a Korean sailor who was shipwrecked and who traveled quite widely in China and, and produced a really very intimate and detailed and vivid uh, and exciting portrait of the uh, of the whole empire. So it is possible to do that. Maybe, I mean, the link that we ought to pursue, because I suppose we, we, we've got very limited time, uh, with the other events of the world in 1492 is, is, is via the fact that, that Columbus was you know, risking everything to try and get to China because he came from a poor backwater of the world, which we now call Europe, you know? yeah. <laughs> which, which, which now we think of, you know, Europe is where everybody from the rest of the world wants to come to, Europe and the United States. Um, but then it was the other way around. <laughs> everybody wanted to leave Europe and go somewhere richer. And that meant, uh, above all, China. So Columbus is, you know, at the very moment when Zhenzhou is having this mystical vision, Columbus is, is in Spain planning his voyage to China. Yeah, I know. I, th I, think that, I think the contrast between the two is one is the restless European on the, the, the verge of having this kind of explosive voyage. And then the harmony of the, because I went and had a look at the, this picture earlier, and it it is, I think, harmony and balance and equipoise all of these like kind of feelings are embedded within it and it feels so different to as you, as you describe um columbus's character there which is this kind of you know full of dynamism and energy and intent and action just one one, one last thing i wanted to ask you about china before we move on is um is really China from the outside and China from Europe. And we know that like kind of there was a, a great sense within Europe of China being the, the kind of the world's greatest economy, this great mart of, of commerce, this centre of perhaps industry. And I know from your uh, your description of the Korean shipwreck diary, it is a lot of that. There's a lot of kind of money sloshing around. And there's a great line in it, I think, where he says, all I could see from the towers was more towers or some, something like that. And it's just kind of sense of a really um, built up landscape. China was where Columbus was hoping to get to, wasn't it? And did it really kind of burn brightly in the Europeans' mind? I know it's like 100 years by this point since any Europeans had kind of really been to China or documented to have been there at least. Yes, I, I think you put all that extremely well, Peter. Um, uh, if you'd thought of writing the book beforehand, I wouldn't have had to bother. Um, <laughs> but, but yes, of course, they all wanted to go there. But of course, as you're right, because no one had been there for such a long time, and he's not from Europe, 
they had no idea what it was like. <laughs> I mean, um, it, 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 people often compare the explorers of this period to, you know, space travelers in our own time. But actually, you know, the space travelers know where they're going and they even have technology, you know, which shows them pictures of it before they get there. Columbus had no idea, you know, what mm. he was going to, to find. Of course, he didn't find China. He found something even more unexpected. But if he got to China, he wouldn't have been able to recognize it for what he thought it was. Because, put it very crudely, his notion of China was based on Marco Polo, which had been written 200 years mm-hmm. earlier. And, and there had been no, no, no letters or anything that reached Europe from China for 100 years before Columbus's um, departure. And he even, you know, when he, when he left Spain, the king and queen of Spain gave him letters to present to the ruler of China if he ever got there. And these, these letters were addressed to the great Khan. And, you know, the last time a Chinese ruler had that title had been 1368. <laughs> it just how, how out of date they were so he really was sort of groping in the dark and like to me i don't know that sort of enhances the sense of adventure it is and it's a great moment of encounter if you imagine shen zhu in his kind of i don't know like i I don't know having his vision and columbus turning up and pacing around to putting them together is very entertaining should i say but let's march on let's go to a second scene because i know we've got a bit more to get through yet and uh, we're going to leave china well behind where would you like to go to next, please? Well, I thought it would be good to go to Africa because I, I think, you know, if one wants to try to make sense of the world, you want to tr- choose some very different places. And obviously Africa's been rather underrepresented in Western historiography for the very good reason that we just don't have such good materials to work with in reconstructing African history. But I think it's quite important to have a look at what was happening in in Africa, because we kind of think of imperialism as a white vice. And I agree it was a vice. I I hate empires, but of course it's not a a white vice, it's a human vice. And everybody had empires, and um, including indigenous native empires in the Americas and and Africa, Europeans didn't introduce imperialism to those worlds. They just became another competitor in what were already very fierce and cruel arenas. And I, I, in 1492, one of the really startling things that happened, well, there are very, star- very startling things here. The Christianity penetrates south of the Sahara for the first time with the uh, activities of Portuguese missionaries in the courts of the uh, rulers of the Congo. There are dramatic developments in the, the only part of Africa that had a long and continuous history of Christianity, that's Ethiopia. Um, but the, the place I'd like to go to on our travel through time is the River Niger, where at an unknown point somewhere between Gao and Timbuktu, the ruler of one of these great indigenous empires, Soni Ali Bur, dies. Very mysterious circumstances. Most accounts mm, attribute his death to uh, a river accident when he was crossing the, the, the river Niger. A huge commerce bearing, enormously rich river that forms the heart of the Songhai Empire. And his death is a really important moment 
in the history of the world, even though most people have never heard of it, is actually very important because his, his, his death inaugurates a power struggle for the throne, which is won by the Islamic candidate, by the Muslim candidate, against the pagan candidate. And that really consolidates what had been a very long trend, which was the penetration of sub-Saharan Africa by, by Islam. And when Islam takes over this major uh, empire, uh, I think that really represents a point of no return. After that, you know, the, the, the supremacy of a pagan kingdom is, is really irretrievable, and Islam is going to be the predominant religion of the of the region, just as at the same moment, further south in the Congo, Christianity is, is beginning to establish itself. And so we begin to see the world taking on the cultural configurations, the civilizational configurations that we see today in which you know, Christianity and Islam and lesser extent Buddhism have become genuinely world religions. You know, they've sort of ruptured their limits. They've burst out of their the frontiers of their cultures of origin that have become global. And they, broadly speaking, they've you know, divided Africa between them. Uh, and uh, there are all sorts of intellectual problems which arise. You know, what is it about these religions that enabled them to become um, global in a way that other religions have not, other religions have remained culturally specific, whereas Christianity and Islam have got this huge you know, appeal to people in every kind of cultural uh, environment. So it's very difficult to say why that was. We can say when it really sort of definitively happened, when, when the, the, the fulcrum tilted in favor of the sort of world we have, inhabit now. And I put that down, you know, to the moment when Sonny uh, Ali Bird dies on the upper Middle Niger in uh, 1492. Let's um, have the best that 1492 can provide us with in terms of breaking news, because out of your book, I've um, taken the extract of the news of his death. It says, Ali the Great, your master. This is a, this is a note that arrived, um, I imagine, at some um, kind of like kind of centre at the centre of the empire. Ali the Great, your master and mine, king of the Songhai, star of the wind, shining sun of our hearts, terror of our enemies, died 10 days ago. Beautiful poetic resonance, isn't that to this? He was on his way back to Gao from an expedition as he was crossing a small tributary to the Niger. A sudden swell arose and carried off our lord, his horse, his baggage, and his train in the surging waves. The army watched powerless from the shore. I was there. We could do nothing. It all happened so fast. It does have a kind of slightly breathless quality about it, which is nice to take you back to the moment. But just could I ask you a little bit about his personality? Because he seems like he was a bit of a tyrant from what I can work out. And tell us a little bit about the empire that he was um, at the heart of. Yes, I mean, the honest answer is, of course, we don't know, <laughs> because, the, you know, the sources about Sonny Ali are, you know, very doubtful authenticity, and um, yeah, there isn't an awful lot that's genuinely contemporary. Uh, but, you know, you can make certain inferences. Um, although he was formerly a Muslim, I mean, he'd, he'd been, his name was Ali, you know, so uh, that's, a, that's a bit of a clue. And he'd, um, there's a lot of evidence that he had been circumcised. So, you know, he's sort of formally a Muslim, but his behavior 
uh, and his priorities and his devotional life don't seem to reflect that very strongly. Uh, he was very deeply allied with a lot of sort of pagan factions in his kingdom. Um, you know, he, he a lot of his advisors were condemned by Muslims as you know, sorcerers and magicians and stuff. That, all that means really is that they weren't Muslims. <laughs> and um, uh, and he he rather you know in the way that a lot of medieval European kings challenge the church challenge the clergy and look for other uh, ways of starting their administrations and surrounding themselves with allies and helpers. So Sonia Ali sidelined the, the clerical class, uh, sidelined the teachers and the sages, uh, and to some extent the rich merchants. So he made himself a lot of enemies in the course of this this defiance, this attempt really to rule the way he wanted to rule without having to rely on these, you know, potentially um, competitive, learned and wealthy elites. Um, so, so you can call him a tyrant if you like. I mean, that's slightly subjective word, um, but yes, he was a tyrant in aspiration. He, he wanted to rule the the, the way he wanted, he didn't want to have to defer to these these other um, uh, parts of the elite of his kingdoms. But I, you know, call it tyranny, or just call it you know the normal way in which um, uh, most rulers want to rule. And so one last question about Ali before we move on again is um, is like the extent of his influence. You. We're talking about the area surrounding Timbuktu in that part of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we, in fact, we talked about Mansa Musa on this podcast not so long ago, maybe a year or so again. He was in the, the Mali Empire, which was 14th century. So I suppose there's a connection there. Is this the kind of name that would be familiar to a character like King Ferdinand in Spain? Or is that too is that overstating his influence? Or is he um, is he kind of localised? Is this a probably a question that we don't know the answer to but i kind of like to ask it anyway he becomes well known to the next generation of europeans uh, because his fame is diffused in europe through the work of uh, an, an ex-muslim he then converts back to islam who who works at the papal court and who you know sort of just publishes a lot of stuff about Africa, African legends and history and so on. Uh, but in his lifetime, I don't think there's any record of Sonny Ali being mentioned anywhere in Europe. Mansa Musa, whom you told me you had earlier, I'm sorry, I missed that podcast. Um, <laughs> he, I mean, he was very famous in Europe because in his own lifetime, he became very famous as a result of diffusion of news of great... Um, uh, pilgrimage that he made to Mecca, to Mecca. Yes. Yeah. and and Sonny Ali's successor, um, the, the 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 Muslim who who ends up ruling the empire, Muhammad Turai, uh, also makes such a pilgrimage. So he also gets to be named quite quite um, quite quickly. But in Sonny Ali's case, it, in spite of your right to say, you know, in spite of the importance of his realm, which was huge and also immensely rich because it, it was the sort of channel, the funnel through which the gold and salt trades of the Sahara and West 
Africa past. Um, in spite of all that, he, he, his own uh, profile in the Europe of his day seems to have been zero. Our partners, ACE Cultural Tours, may have just the holiday for you. ACE has over 60 years of experience in group cultural travel, and they offer a wide selection of historical and archaeological itineraries. Their schedule for 2022 and 2023 features tours covering the span of the Roman Empire across all points of the compass, from Algeria to Albania, Anglesey to Anatolia. ACE's tour to the heart of Rome will focus on the imperial period and includes a visit to the fascinating city of Ostia Antica, once the bustling port of Rome. Closer to home, a summer trip to the magnificent remains of Hadrian's Wall will take in sites including Vindolanda, where the famous writing tablets were uncovered. What better way to delve into the past than to follow in the footsteps of those who came before us? Find out more about travelling through time with ACE via their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Okay, well, that's a good answer to that, and it's fascinating to like kind of put the uh, these pictures of the world together. We've got one last destination to go in 1492, and I imagine it's the one that would probably have uh, popped into most of our listeners' minds as we began this conversation. So, Philippe, over to you. Where would you like to go for your final and third choice in 1492, please? Well, I don't really want to go there because it's sort of reluctant, <laughs> but I just thought you can't talk about 1492 without Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> and with that extraordinary moment, according to his own record, it was the 12th of October, when um, for the first time, Native Americans and Europeans um, see each other, at least the, 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 you know, the first time of which we have a record. Um, and it is a most extraordinary encounter, very resonant for the future of the world, because you know you can date... Uh, the resumption of the, the these trans-oceanic intercontinental cultural encounters, the resumption of contact between exchange between cultures which have been interrupted for so many thousands of years by the dispersion of humankind across the globe. So really important moment. And also I think one of the most misunderstood in history, especially you know, nowadays when a, 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 a false idea of what happened has taken over because you know, we're so used to thinking in these encounters of the white guys, the Europeans, you know, having all the power and determining everything. And to some extent, of course, that's true because the records that have come down to us of these very early encounters are all the ones written by white men. Uh, and we, we can only get a sense of the perception of the indigenous participants by reading between the lines of the white men's accounts. Nevertheless, of course, natives were by no means, you know, bereft of agency. Indeed, they were in charge, you know, they, they, they knew the terrain, they were at home, there were more of them. <laughs> and uh, indeed, you know, the garrison that Columbus left behind in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Hispaniola when he, when he left the New World for the first time were all rapidly massacred. <laughs> so, um, so, so we mustn't think that the indigenous people didn't have a lot of agency. Nor must we think that Columbus approached them, you know, with a, a very obvious sense of, of superiority. I think if you actually look at what he says about his own first impressions, they're very conflicted. 
as you'd expect, you know, we have this tendency to oversimplify them and say, oh, well, you know, Columbus just sort of saw these people as, as, as exploitable and potential slaves and so on. That's very far from the truth. He approaches them with awe. He's really surprised. He's very surprised that they're not monstrous. He's, he, he talks about how, you know, they're just ordinary people like us and, and the, he sees them in a, uh, with sort of a revelatory sense of, of common kinship and belonging, which I think is an amazing achievement for someone looking at uh, um, people so culturally different uh, and so physically in some ways different from what he was used to. So he so his response is very sympathetic. And the first thing he noticed is they're naked, <laughs> which is something which in Europe at the time, you know, was generally speaking a bad thing. You know, if you were naked, that, that evoked all sorts of negative connotations about how you might be like a beast or you might how you might be an, a heretical Adamite who were people who are supposed to go around naked and practice free love. And <laughs> so, so of course you'd see these naked people and all those negative thoughts would come into your mind. But Columbus also sees this nakedness as a very positive thing, as an evidence, evidence of a sort of primitive virtue, uh, sees it as the, the garb of the golden age, the sort of remote uh, past that classical poets have, have sung, almost of the nakedness of Adam and Eve, sort of innocent nakedness, dependence on God, like the nakedness of St. Francis, Columbus's great devotee of St. Francis of Assisi, like the present Pope. Uh, and, and, um, and you know, St. Francis had stripped himself naked in the public square of Assisi at the beginning of his, his vocation as a sign of his dependence on God. So Columbus also invokes all those positive things about the indigenous um, people. And of course, you know, he remains conflicted uh, about them, but we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that you know, people in the 15th and 16th centuries were already behaving like you know, 19th century racists with a sort of full kind of comprehensive notion of their own superiority in their minds. It just wasn't like that. That's to read history backwards. You, you, you've got a really lovely expression when you write about this and you're trying to pinpoint the location for this moment of encounter. And you say that, um, I think the island that's now called as Watling is the least bad match for what we can work out from his descriptions of the place that he called San Salvador, of course. Um, Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one last question about this this moment because it it's almost too too broad because we we could spend all day talking about this moment. But as so much of your 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 work kind of rises out of this cultural and contextual appreciation of the world as a moment, do you, do you look back at that this specific moment with Columbus's voyage in 1492 as an immense achievement of of human endeavor, or was it kind of a historical inevitability given the conditions of the time and what was happening, or as ever, was it a mix of the two? Yeah, well, obviously, um, <laughs> it's never any good asking me, you know, either or, because I always <laughs> respond like poo, you know, Winnie the Pooh, when he was asked, do you want jam or honey on his bread? He always said both, you know, <laughs> that's always my, my response, that kind of, uh, of question. But of course, it was a triumph of human endeavor. 
in the sense that um, you know <laughs> nobody else had done it. And you can say what you like about Columbus, and who doesn't? You know, and there are all sorts of deficiencies uh, in his character and in his morals. Of course, he was like all of us, a mixture of virtues and vices. But you've got to give him credit for having the audacity to sail with the wind behind him. You know, there'd been lots of attempts to cross the Atlantic in the 15th century, and they'd all failed. And the reason they failed was they all played it safe. They all sailed into the wind. Very hard thing for people nowadays to understand, because everybody now likes to have the wind, you know, in their sails. But of course, if you do that, and you're going to somewhere, you're going to an unknown destination, you don't know whether you're ever going to get back. So you sail into the wind, because that's the only way you can be sure of getting home. Uh, and and Columbus had the amazing merit of ditching the sort of safe method and saying, I'm going to sail with the wind. And that was what enabled him and him alone for the first time uh, to discover a viable, commercially exploitable route across the Atlantic. And that really did change the world um, forever. Uh, of course, you know, um, somebody else would have done it at some time, I suppose. Um, but I... I never feel that that's a very good argument for taking away the <laughs> achievement of the, of the first person to, to do it, because it's frightfully easy uh, for me to say, well, you know, I, 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 you've got a great idea for a podcast, Peter. But of course, I thought of it first, you know, but, yeah. but, but and I would, have, I would have been able to do it just as well as you. I could easily say that, but you did it and I didn't. <laughs> There's so, pubs uh, full of such Give people. you the credit for that. Yeah. Let's give Columbus the credit for what he did. <laughs> Let's uh, two, so two two final questions, and they're both quite quick ones. So they won't uh, detain you very long. First of all, if if we're trying to put Magellan into this story in fourteen ninety two, how old would he have been at that time? This is would would he have been like kind of a sentient adult by this point? Well, there's a lot of dispute about his date. Of birth. Oh. Uh, I, I argue for a later date than anybody who's written about him previously for all kinds of complicated reasons but i think he he i don't think he could have been born before 1485 so you know i'm going to say he's not more than than seven years old so we can imagine him um, cantering around in some playground somewhere at this point and well well alas um probably not because you know uh he he was an orphan we don't know when he uh, was sent to the court of the king for his education, but it may well have been about this time. Okay, well, we'll leave that one hanging. People can go to the book, of course, to get the fuller picture. And, of course, the last question I have to ask you is if you could bring a tangible memento back from the year 1492 to have with you today, perhaps having your writing um, study as a bit of a talisman, something to encourage you on, is there anything that you would particularly like to have? Well, I, I, I'm... I, I'm I, I'm not materially inquisitive. I mean, the experience of being there and seeing these things would be um, transformative for me because it's how, how I spend my life is trying to you know imagine these remote events as accurately as I can and trying to converse with the dead. You know, in a way, that's the historian's job. You've got these questions in your mind, you interrogate the sources. So actually, if you know, one could, could, could literally summon up these guys from the past and, uh, and, and really talk to them, that would enhance one's sense of having understood them, which is what I've, I've tried to do in my 
work. And of course, you know, if you're going to offer me um, an artifact from 1492, I've got to have uh, one of Jean I'd ask him when I was interrupting his piece, <laughs> it's, it's mystical experience on the night of August the 7th, I'd ask him, yeah, could, please, could I have a painting to take back with me oh, to wow. the uh, 21st century? And that would be, um, that would be one of my, my most prized uh, positions. I have got a Chinese scroll given to me by one of my Chinese students hanging in my study. Uh, I, if I could have one from Zhenzhou, that, that, that would be the best, well, best material gift I could have. Well, I, th I think that's pretty pretty good. Um, well, listen, this this has been fabulous, really, really informative, hugely entertaining. We hopefully spoke a little bit about the book as well as about the tour through 1492. And all that remains for me to say is, Philippe, thank you very much for coming on Travels Through Time. Well, thanks for all due to you from me. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Philippe Fernandez Armesto about his new book. It's called Straits Beyond the Myth of Magellan. And as you can tell from that conversation, it's full of detail, full of insight and full of experience from years in the archive. If you want to find out more about the episode, please do head over to our website, which is tttpodcast.com, where you'll be able to also browse our full catalogue of episodes. For today, though, that's it. Thank you very much for listening.